Well, we're going to continue our study in Acts this morning. So if you would turn to Acts chapter 4. I, I don't know if, I know I said something to Randy last time. Um, maybe I said something to the church. I can't remember. You know, we, we go so far between preaching. I, I sometimes, I have a hard time keeping track of where I'm at, let alone where all the other guys are at. And I'm, I'm sure sure uh, some of you struggle with that. I kind of struggle with that. That's okay, though. I think it's good. I, I like how we do it, though. Um, but I, I, have a, I have a hard time um, preaching through... Uh, historical narratives. That's what Acts is. If you recall, we talked about it a long time ago that Acts is this, this historical narrative. I mean, we're just going through this chronology of the history of the, the formation, if you will, the early church. And so sometimes it's not as, as like, I don't want to say theologically cut and dry, but, you know, we're, we're reading a story, reading about things that have happened. And so sometimes the theological truths or point or whatever don't just pop out because it's not like, you know, Paul addressing some particular sin or doctrinal, you know, issue. Um, though we still see doctrine and theology and all this weaved throughout Acts, you have to approach it differently. And so because of that, again, maybe it's just my personal struggle, but I, I do struggle as, as we go through and preach it. However, um, I'm excited even about the text that we're going to look at today, because even as we go through the story, we see just profound truths of God's word being proclaimed. And so as we kind of work our way through what's happening, we'll be able to hit like some theological, if you will, highlights that are that are important um, to us practically. So if you would, again, <clears throat> excuse me, turn um, to Acts chapter 4. And we're going to be looking at verses 1 through um, 12 today. And, and just kind of as a, as a recap... Um, Shortly after Pentecost, right? So just kind of putting everything in perspective, right? We're talking like, um, you know, Christ at this point may be ascended, I'm not sure, a week ago, week and a half ago. I mean, in the timeline of, of where we're at, Pentecost just happened like maybe two days, three days prior to this. So again, so this is now, what, almost two months post-resurrection. So again, just kind of putting it all in, in into perspective. And so the last couple months, we had Peter and John, or we were looking at Peter and John. They went to the temple, right? And uh, uh, Christ, through Peter, right, healed this man who was uh, uh, born lame, right, from birth, was, was, was a cripple, right? And so um, Christ healed this man. Christ, in fact, saved this man. And we see his testimony. We, we talked about that last time. And then that, that drew a crowd. And, and Peter and John then seizing on this opportunity, um, preach the gospel to this crowd that had gathered around them. And so that's where we kind of pick up in um, chapter 4. And again, so I'm going to read chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. They arrested them and put them in custody until the next day, for it was already evening. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest and Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter replied, filled with the Holy Spirit. And then Peter, sorry, filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Peter and, and John here um, are persecuted, right, for preaching the truth. I have in my notes, I wrote down un, unpopular truth. Right, now, I was thinking about that. I'm like, is there such thing as unpopular truth? Well, those who find it unpopular probably don't believe it to be true. But as we would probably classify it, I would say unpopular truth. So is there, is there popular truth? Is there unpopular truth? And as I was thinking about that, you know, people like to talk about the golden rule, you know, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, right? I think we could go out into a pagan society and we could, we could proclaim that truth 
right? And and even the worst of us would be like, oh yeah, that's great. That's that's you know that's awesome. We should do unto others. Whether or not they actually do that is one thing. But people love love the idea of that, right? And so even even sometimes they twist those truths. I think it was Ronnie or Justin or Randy. I can't like I said, keep everything straight, but we're talking about judging last time or, or last, was it Wednesday or on a Sunday, talking about judge not lest ye be judged, okay? People love that, right? Of course, they, they twist it, okay? But people love what we would call popular truths, but then there's these unpopular truths, right? Um, and so Peter and John were, were preaching in part or proclaiming an unpopular truth, and so they were being persecuted for, for preaching, teaching this unpopular truth, and specifically... It was the resurrection of the dead or the resurrection of Jesus. They were preaching something contrary to what uh, a group known as the Sadducees had um, believed or what they believed. Now, the Sadducees, they were this, um, they were rich, elite, Roman loyalists. Okay? They, were, they were very um, religious. And when I say religious, they were like uh, a ritualistic uh, uh, religious they weren't like uh, Orthodox Jewish religious, okay? They weren't like the Pharisees at all. In fact, the Sadducees, as I was thinking about that, even this morning, the Sadducees were really just nominal Jews. I mean, they, they, weren't, they weren't religious Jews. Um, for all intents and purposes, they were, they were secularists. They, um, they were anti-Messianic. Okay, they didn't they didn't believe in God's coming Messiah. Um, they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in, in spirits. And I don't mean like ooh, like Casper, the friendly ghost spirits. I mean, like they didn't believe that that we that people had immortal souls and or or spirits um, that, that, that this life, this life was it. Um, after you died, that was it. You're dead. You know, um, there's 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 nothing there's nothing beyond this when it came to scripture. Um, they only held the, the Pentateuch or the Torah, the first five books of, of Old Testament scriptures as being uh, loosely, I guess I would say, authoritative. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? Everything else was just really um, garbage to them. And so Peter and John are preaching this, this, this message that is completely contrary to what they, they believed. And so it says as a result that um, it greatly annoyed, right, um, the Sadducees, right? So they arrested them, and they put them in custody until the next day. It says, for it was already um, evening. Uh, simply it was, it was too late for a trial, right? Um, the law had dictated that past a certain time, maybe it was past sunset. I read a couple different responses but or answers to that but the point was it was too late in the day for a trial um and so they arrested them and they imprisoned them and what we have here is is we have the the beginning of the persecution of of the church okay now it's not it's not the beginning of the persecution for for the godly right i was thinking about that and i think i think the persecution of the godly goes all the way back to the to, to the Genesis account of um, Cain killing Abel, right? So I, I guess you know some might argue, but I, I think that's where we, we we begin to see the persecution of the godly, and we can see that all throughout the Old Testament up until this point. But what we have here is we have the beginning of the persecution of the church. And this should be no surprise. It, should, it shouldn't have been a surprise to. To Peter and John, right? It shouldn't have been a surprise to to the first century church. Um, let's look at John fifteen eighteen through twenty one. And Jesus speaking here says, "If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own." But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore, what? The world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. 
But all these things they will do to you on account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Also in Second Timothy 3.12. Paul says, indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus says will be persecuted. And I was thinking about this just just obviously for for them for Peter and John I mean it, it no surprise I mean they they just saw Christ crucified you know two months prior to that so um, persecution was something that that was um, very real in in the first century just just living under Roman occupation right. And, and probably being intimately familiar with the brutality of, of Rome. I mean, does it surprise us that, that, that we're treated this way by, by the Romans, by, by our countrymen, let alone the Romans, or by Romans, let alone our countrymen, right? I mean, that was, that was just the culture of, of the day, right? So, so it should have been much less surprising for them, and I don't think it was at all. Um, but I was thinking about that in, in relation to us. You know, we have, have been you know, kind of American Western society culture, um, immune um, for the most part to, to persecution, um, at least, at least in, in probably what we would consider extreme or, or severe ways. And I think so much so that at times when, when Christians are persecuted in, in America, we, we may downplay it because it, it doesn't look like it does in you know, the Middle East, or in, you know, communist China, or uh, uh, Somalia, or Kenya, or, or, or wherever else, right? I mean, I think we would all admit that, yeah, you're right, we don't, we don't, we don't deal with what they deal with. Historically, in America, we haven't. But here's the thing, it's, it's coming, okay? And I, I think that we could look at current events to say that it's coming, right? I mean, we can look at things that are actually occurring in our country to say, well, yeah, sure, it's coming. We have, we have people being persecuted for this, persecuted for that. They, you know, they're, they're put out of business because they won't, they won't do this, right? They're, they're fired because they believe this or whatever the case may be. As severe as being beheaded in, in, in uh, uh, the Middle East, no, obviously not. Right. I think we're at the beginning of that, but we don't even need to look to current events to know that persecution is coming. We just look to Christ's words. He says, servant's not greater than his master. Right? If they persecuted me, they will, they will persecute you. So I'm not going to quantify and put a time frame on it, but I do think looking at current events, I think all of us can say, you know what, it is, it is coming. It is upon us. Right? And here's the thing. Um, Persecution will be preceded by the proclamation of truth. So, do you want to be do you want to be persecuted, right? Then, then proclaim biblical truth. Because where there is a proclamation of biblical truth, there will be persecution. You know, I was I was thinking about that just in in, in relation to um, Romans chapter one. I mean, we are, we are living this, right? For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. I mean, that was then, but this is now as well, right? Um, it's as if it's been restrained maybe for us over the, the, the last several centuries, but it's now as if those restraints have been removed, right? For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, uh, attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made so that they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the, the, the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man, birds and animals and creeping things. Therefore, God gave them up to the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. 
For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural uh, relations for those that are contrary to nature, and their men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed um, with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men, receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. And since they did not um, see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. Uh, They were filled with all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice. They were full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. They're gossips, slanderers, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. Reading that um, and studying, I was thinking back to Isaiah. I mean, we're going back hundreds of years, right? And in Isaiah chapter 5, it says, you know, woe to those who, who call evil good and good evil, right? We are we are living in in the midst of that. And I think whatever restraints that there may have been on that or against that have been removed and are, are being removed. And so we should not be surprised as we face persecution. Christ was persecuted. His apostles and his disciples were persecuted, right? All of those who, what, seek to live godly lives will be persecuted. I'm not going to quantify the degrees and all of that, okay? Go back to Romans, uh, Romans, I'm sorry, uh, Acts 4. Acts 4, verse 4, it says they, they, they verse 3, they, they put them in custody. It was evening, they imprisoned them. Now in verse 4, all right? <clears throat> so think of this in the context of persecution. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. So, again, days after Pentecost, right, 3,000 men, right, saved Pentecost, right? Now it says that number has grown to 5,000. It wasn't 5,000 additional uh, at at the time of their preaching up at the temple, right? It's just giving a a total since Pentecost, right? 5,000, I mean, this is men. So, in effect, this is like families, right? So, up to this point, since Pentecost, I mean, I don't even know how you quantify how many people. I mean, if you were just, if every man had a wife and had two kids, you're looking at 20,000 people, but but also included in that number would have been those that might have had servants or slaves or whatever. So we're talking potentially tens of thousands of people have been saved just in the last couple of days when it comes to persecution um, and the spread of the gospel, right? Persecution tends to have the opposite effect that those who are doing the persecuting wish to have. Listen, the gospel cannot be bound. And persecution of the church doesn't bind the gospel, but it has the opposite effect, right? It, It empowers those who are proclaiming the gospel, and it in fact actually spreads the gospel, sends the gospel out. Second century church father uh, Tertullian had, had written that the blood of the martyrs is what most of us are familiar with. Seed of the church, right? So persecution when it comes to the spread of the gospel is a good thing. Isaiah fifty five eleven. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty. Right? Most of us usually have that part, but, but listen to the second part, especially in, in, in relation to what we're talking about here. But it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. The gospel cannot be bound. The gospel cannot be stopped. God, if you will, and his gospel 
is an unstoppable force. I was thinking about that this morning, just, and I don't know why this story popped in my mind. It's, it's one that I love and I and think about often, which is probably why it was, was, was on my mind. But I was thinking about um, the five uh, missionaries, right, down in um, uh, what, Ecuador, the Aka Indians, uh, Jim Elliott, Nate Saint, Roger Udarian, and, and I, I can't think of the other two right now, right? I was just thinking about, about their lives and their death, just even in the relationship of this, right? I mean, here, here they, they went to proclaim the gospel to this unreached people group, right? Um, I mean, this, this, this people group that not just unreached in the sense of never having heard the gospel, but like never seen a white man before, had limited contact with the outside world. And by outside world, we're talking about even other tribal people, totally isolated people group, right? And so they kept trying to make this contact, make this contact, make this contact, right? Um, and they're, they're killed in the process, right? They're, they're, they're martyred in the process. I mean, it was uh, persecution. Uh, it looked differently than, you know, what maybe Peter and John and others had, had experienced, but nonetheless the same thing. And so they're dead, right? So at the end of their lives, they don't see forward progress. They don't, they don't see anything, right? We're trying to get the gospel here. Boom, mission failure. I mean, that's, that's what it would have looked like at the moment of, of, of their deaths. And then what happens, right? The, the sister of Nate Saint and the wife of Jim Elliott, and I can't keep the story straight, right? But they continue to pursue these people. And in fact, the death of the five missionaries was the door that God used and opened to, to take the gospel to them, right? And then God ends up saving you know, the whole tribe or the vast majority of the people in the tribe. In fact, one of the men that, that through the spirits became like a, a, a pastor, tribal leader, elder, whatever. What a great real-life example that we have, and by real life, like in our time frame, right, of the fact that the gospel cannot be stopped. Nate St. Jim Elliott, Roger and the other guys, Peter, was there a Peter, I think? Yeah, Peter Fleming? No, Fleming, I think, and I can't remember the other. Anyway, their mission wasn't a, a failure. Their, their deaths weren't failure. God and his gospel is an unstoppable force. His word will not return void, and it will succeed. Now, we can fail, right? And we fail through, through disobedience, right? But just because we fail doesn't mean that the gospel fails and that God fails, because he will not fail. He will succeed, in spite of us, or despite us. In Second Timothy, um, Paul was talking about. We're not going to turn there, but just another uh, another example. Timothy was uh, Paul. Sorry, was talking to Timothy, and he says, "You know, though, though I'm in chains, right, and though I am bound, he says the gospel what is is not bound. In fact, it was Paul's chains that did what." I don't want to say took the gospel to Rome because the gospel was kind of already there, okay? Because he was writing the letter of Romans to believers in Rome before he went to Rome. I mean, so we, so we get that, right? But, but Paul's chains furthered the spread of the gospel in, in Rome. Another story that I read this week was about a, um, a, a believer... Um, North Korea, um, at the, the hermit kingdom here. And she had been going back and forth. There was a, uh, she'd escaped, went across the river to China and wound up at some house or place where, I forget what the missionary organization was, but they have, you know, teams there when people come across the border to, to take care of them uh, physically, but more so spiritually. And so she's evangelized, she's saved, and so she, she goes back to North Korea and takes the gospel with her. And she, so she keeps going back and forth and back and forth and back and forth. She winds up being captured, and she winds up being put into a, a, one of their prison camps. And, and she tells the story about how while she's in that prison camp, she's able to not just witness to many, but to see five of her fellow prisoners come to know Christ. Again, so here she is, she is bound and she is chained, so to speak. But in fact, what does it do? It, it, it unleashes, in part, 
the gospel among those circumstances. You may chain us, but you can't chain the gospel. Back in Acts 4, um, starting in verse 5. It says, On the next day, their rulers and elders and scribes gathered together in in Jerusalem. So just simply talking about the Sanhedrin, right? This is the again the the governing um the governing body. This is in uh, uh um uh, with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, John, Alexander, all who were of the high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, um, by what power, by what name did you do this? That they were questioned, okay, was was not abnormal. Um, in fact, was was or would have been required by Mosaic law. In, in, in Deuteronomy, it, it essentially lays out. We'll, we'll, uh, yeah, we will look there real quick. Deuteronomy 13, um, just to show that the, the questioning this this wasn't or wouldn't have been really persecution. Um, Deuteronomy 13:1. If a prophet or a dreamer of dreams arises among you and gives you a sign or wonder, right, and that sign or wonder that he tells you comes to pass, right. Um, if he says, let us go after other gods which you have not known and let us serve them, you shall not listen to the words of the prophet or the dreamer of dreams. For the Lord your God is testing you to know whether you love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul. You shall walk after the Lord your God and fear him and keep his commandments and obey his voice and you shall serve him and hold fast to him. Um, but the prophet or that dreamer of dreams shall be put to death because he has taught rebellion against the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and redeemed you out of the house of slavery to make you leave the way in which the Lord your God commanded you to walk. So you shall purge the evil from your midst. So again, that they were questioned wouldn't have been an abnormal thing, and I don't think would even count as, as part of the persecution. However, the the imprisonment, right, um, was, and 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 would have been, right. Back into Acts um, four. All right. So, so we just kind of examine this fact that. Um, the gospel can't be bound, right? Not only can the gospel not be bound, but history has also shown that that persecution tends to create boldness in in believers. We often hear stories of believers who are persecuted, and instead of kind of shrinking back and and withdrawing, right? They they are and or become empowered to be even more bold um, when it comes to the proclamation of, of the gospel. And we see that here uh, with Peter in, in verse 8. So they just question him, by what power or what name did you do this? Again, this, this wasn't why they originally arrested him, right? They arrested him because he was preaching a message contrary to what the, the ruling class and party held to be true, and that was resurrection, all right? So now they've got him there, and so now they're they're trying to take this, I think, somewhat moral high ground, and they're like, well, we we might have imprisoned him under, you know, probably false pretenses, or so let's just so let's get back to this miracle that that happened, right? So now we're gonna, you know, we might not have followed the law at the beginning, but let's follow it now. You performed this miracle, and by what power did you perform this miracle, right? And it says in verse eight, then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them. Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to you and all of the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. Peter's boldness. Okay. And in my notes here, I have that Peter proclaims the truth with, with precision. Okay, uh, Persecution emboldened him. Peter's boldness and powerful proclamation was a result of the Holy Spirit's work. It wasn't Peter. Okay, He didn't get credit. Um, Peter was being led, filled by the Holy Spirit. What does it mean to be filled by the Holy Spirit? We have a great example. We were talking about this not too long ago, right? It means to be led or to be be controlled, right? So Peter was being led, controlled by the Holy Spirit. Now, Jesus promised this. Um, uh, Luke chapter 12. 
Luke 12, uh, verses 11 and 12. When they bring you before the synagogues and the rulers and the authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Listen, effective Christian ministry, that, 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 that applies to all of us, right? Because all of us as believers, those who are believers, we are called to Christian ministry, right? Some level or, or another, some degree or another, right? We're all called to go ye therefore. We're all called to, to, to proclaim the gospel. We're all called to evangelize and, and disciple, all right? None of us as believers get a pass on that. Effective Christian ministry is critically dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit. We, we, we are incapable of doing it on our own. Now, now, yes, God uses us in spite of us and our sin all the time, and God uses sin, sin sinlessly, right? But nonetheless, effective Christian ministry, right, it's critically dependent upon the work of the Holy Spirit, and we are incapable of doing it on our own. John, John 15, 5. And we're talking about um, in, our, in our equipping time, and we're going through respectable sins. And the last couple of weeks, we were talking about the, the role of the Holy Spirit um, uh, working in us and working through us to deal with sin in our life, right? And one of the things that we had said was we can't do it. We can't clean ourselves up, even as believers, right? We can't deal with these respectable sins on our own. We need God working actively in us and through us to do that. Same, same as it is here when it comes to just being effective in ministry, right? Jesus in John 15 says, I am the vine and you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, what? says he bears much fruit, right? And then he says, for apart from me, you can do what? Nothing. Nothing. We must be critically dependent upon the Holy Spirit if we are to be effective in ministry, in, in, in evangelizing, in discipling, whether it be discipling your children, right, or your younger brother or sister or older brother or sister or working with your parents or your neighbors or your co-workers or, 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 or be it in formal church ministry, going to the prisons, going to the nursing home, going to the, 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 the youth shelter, whatever it is, we must be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. This isn't a, um, I'll get it when I need it kind of thing. I mean, we talk about that, right? It's like, well, I don't know. I don't know how. I don't know how Peter did it. Um, I don't know that I could I could be as bold as Peter, right? I don't know that I could I could proclaim the truth with as as with the, with the same level of precision that that Peter did. Um, well, let me tell you something: you can't, right? In in Peter's shoes, you can't do that. You are incapable. I am incapable of of doing that. Being critically dependent upon the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit in and through you, in and through us, can do that. And if we are, are living such lives now where we're living completely dependent upon Him, I am confident that in those moments, He will do that. Had Peter not already been living a life filled by the Holy Spirit, controlled, led by the Holy Spirit, he would have completely failed before the Sanhedrin. It would have looked like what it looked like when Christ was being led to his crucifixion. You know this guy? I know him. Who? Jesus, right? He's the guy that does the gardening. Oh, no. No, I don't know that guy. That guy's a different guy, right? That was Peter acting under the power of Peter. And here, in contrast to that, what do we have? We have Peter acting under the power and the control of the Holy Spirit. It's not a, 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 I mean, we will get it when we need it if we're living under that, under him, being led by him now. But if we're, if we're not, 
we can have no confidence that when we face persecution, when we face trials, that, well, God will give me what I need. If you're not relying on him now, you're not going to be relying on him then. Now, he might use that to break whatever sin there is in your life, to get you dependent upon him. But I'd rather be there now, and, and I want you to be there now, and I think we all should want to be there now. And so we can look at this example and say, hey, you know what? If, if, if it happened tomorrow and they came knocking on my door, I would crumble like Peter did when they crucified Christ. And um, the reality is that they probably won't come knocking on my door now, so I need to, we, need to, we need to repent and we need to start depending upon him now. So if and when that day comes, right, we will be prepared for, for that. We see that Peter being emboldened, um, preaching the truth with precision, he, he, really, he really does so aggressively and even confrontationally. Right? I mean, we live in this, this, this society where the vast majority, majority of, 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 of Christians and pastors and all that exists within churchianity wants to be kind of like, well, we don't want to offend nobody, so we don't talk about sin. We just feed them pizza and tell them that they'll have a good week if they follow these steps. And then maybe someday we can be like, so, you know, you think, you know, maybe there's just some stuff in your life you shouldn't do, you know, right? I mean, that, 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 that's what we live under now for the most part, right? Where we just try to sanitize everything, not confront or not offend anyone, right? And so here we have Peter in the midst of it, right, who's being aggressive and being confrontational. Now, I'm not talking about being aggressive and being confrontational simply for the sake of being aggressive and or being confrontational. I mean, if you're going to be argumentative just for the sake of being argumentative, then you should probably just keep your lips together, right? That's not what we're talking about. That's not what Peter was doing. He was, he was being argumentative, if you will. He was being, not argumentative, he was being aggressive and being confrontational, not just simply for the sake of the gospel, but that God would use the proclamation of the gospel that, that he was doing here and now to save these to save these men, to save his, his accusers, to save the men who just crucified Christ. Um, let's go back to Acts 4. Um, find my place here. Okay, so we'll just pick up in 10. They question him. He's talking about this good deed. And he says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, here he goes, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the chief cornerstone. So there's, there's two points um, and that I'm going to point out about Peter's aggressive and confrontational message here. The one is this, is, is he, I guess, accuses, proclaims, lays out personal responsibility, deals with the issue of personal responsibility. The other one is the exclusivity of Christ. We'll look at that in just a moment. Um, he says, you're responsible for crucifying Jesus. And then it says, this is fascinating. He quotes um, in verse 11, talking about the stone rejected by you, right? He's, he's quoting from Psalm 118, I think it's verse 22, right? Th this passage talking about the, the chief cornerstone being rejected, right? that was a messianic passage. So, so even the, the, those who were there within the um, Sadducees, though they didn't believe in any of this, right? Being familiar with Orthodox Judaism knew what Peter was saying, those there who were Orthodox Jews knew what Peter was saying, and they were saying, you crucified Jesus, who was in fact God's promised Messiah. Now, you did it according to God's plan. I mean, God, God said it was going to happen, right? You're the instruments and the tools that God used and a part of this, this whole process, but that doesn't negate personal responsibility. Now, he wasn't just trying to establish guilt 
for the sake of guilt. I'm going to make them feel bad, right? I hope they go home just with their heads hung low, just feeling like scum. I mean, he wasn't, he wasn't just because just then I feel better because they feel bad. I mean, right, we do that, don't we, sometimes? We're on, we, we do that. Maybe not when it comes to gospel stuff. I hope not when it comes to gospel stuff, but we probably do it when it comes to family and friends and someone wrongs us, and so we want to make them feel bad so we can feel better because we'll feel better if they feel bad, but it really doesn't make us feel better, right, because it's not right. You can follow that. Um, listen, the idea of addressing personal responsibility for sin and accountability, one, is, is highly offensive. To, to the lost, right? Anyone who's done any level of evangelism can can relate with that. I, um, my boss, good friend, kind of a good friend. I mean, not like I'm biblically so good, but, you know, he's a friend. I've known him for, for years. He was a friend before he was my boss, and so that kind of makes the relationship a little bit different. Um, atheist, well, he'll say he's an agnostic because he doesn't know, can't know kind of thing, but, but he's a God-hater, Okay. And, and we've talked about all of this. And what he finds most offensive about the gospel, it isn't to do unto others. So that's awesome, right? Um, it's, it's the idea of, of personal accountability. It's the idea of, uh, that, that, that the Bible says that he's a sinner, that he's a, he's a wretch and he's a wicked man, right? Because in his eyes, he's not. He's a good man, right? He's, he's, he's self-righteous, Right? God's word exposes that and says, no, there's no unrighteous, no, not one. And furthermore, not only are you unrighteous, right, you, you are accountable and will be held to give an account of all your unrighteous deeds, right? Highly, highly offensive truth, an unpopular truth that when preached will result in persecution. Yet, if a person is to be saved, that person must acknowledge and turn from their sin. A person must repent. How is a man made right with God? Right? What must I do to be saved? Turn from your sin and turn, turn to Christ. Right? Um, well, if you're a good person, then you don't need to turn from your sin, do you? So, so in evangelizing, it is, it is crucial that we establish personal responsibility and that we make a call to repentance and faith. And we know that when God saves, he doesn't save on the basis of repentance. Um, repentance and faith are gifts that God grants anyway, right? And when God saves, he saves on the basis of Christ's work and Christ's work alone. But what we have here, what Peter is doing, right, He's, and, and they knew this, okay? Peter was calling them out for their sin. And in calling them out for their sin, he was calling them to repent. And we specifically know that he was calling them to repent because of what we have in verse 12. So he exposes their sin and, and killing Jesus, who, who was and is God's Messiah, And in verse 12, he says, And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. He says there is salvation in Christ Jesus. Right? Christ is a title, right? It's not a name, I think. So often we, 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 I mean, it is a name, but it's a title. I mean, it's, it's Messiah, Christ, interchangeable, okay? Um, salvation is in Christ Jesus and in him alone. If you're trusting in your good works, there is no salvation. If you're trusting in Jesus plus your good works, there is no salvation. If you're trusting in, I don't know, Buddha, there is no salvation. If you're trusting in fill in the blank, there is no 
salvation. If, and this, this, is, an, and this is probably one that, that we probably face more than anything, um, or a lot of times, at least within churchianity, are those people who will say, well, you know, I'm saved by Jesus. I mean, and I'm saved by, by Christ alone. I mean, he's my savior. I'm trusting in Jesus alone for my savior. But, I mean, I'm not going to, I'm not going to tell other people that he's the only way, right? Like, I mean, you know, Jesus is my way to God, right? So they might start giving good answers. It makes it sound like, you know, faith in Christ has saved that person and that person alone. But then they start talking this crazy talk that's like, oh, but that's just my way, right? And, and you know, God might have his own way for the Muslims or the Jews or the Buddhists or the whateverists, right? So listen. A non-exclusive Jesus, right? So, so Peter's proclaiming this message of an exclusive Jesus, right? And then we talk about the non-exclusive Jesus, who's my way but not maybe your way, right? Listen, a non-exclusive Jesus is an idol. A non-exclusive Jesus is a false Jesus. A non-exclusive Jesus has no power to save because he only exists in your head. So Peter proclaims this message that there is salvation in no one other than Christ. John 14, verse 6. Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father <clears throat> except to me, which, which makes me wonder those people that, that, that don't hold to the exclusivity of Christ. Well, you don't believe in that Jesus because you're saying that Jesus is a liar. If you don't believe in exclusive Jesus, then you're saying that Jesus in John chapter 14 is lying when he says no one can come to the Father except through me. So you're saying that this Jesus is, is really just a lunatic. I mean, right? I mean, if he believes it, he's nuts. And if he doesn't believe it, he's a liar. And your Jesus is the right. Jesus says, there's no other way to the Father except through me. Uh, um, we've got the narrow gate, right? Listen, Jesus is, he is the narrow gate. He is the narrow path. So Peter's proclaiming this, this message to them, and he's, he's roasting them in part for their sin. He's exposing their sin for the purpose of calling them to the repentance and to faith, and it's made evident in verse 12. When he just doesn't say, hey, you're a bad guy and you killed Christ, and you're a wicked sinner because of your addiction to, to porn or your, your anger or your, your greed, right? He calls them out on their sin, and then he boldly points to Christ. It's the only way. I consider this passage, um, and it really was just a mild encounter. Right? We know Peter was eventually crucified upside down, right? There were other apostles and disciples who were martyred horrifically, beheaded, and and we know Christians throughout time have been 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 persecuted in just hora- uh, horrific ways that we can't even begin to imagine. And so when we we consider this first encounter of of Christian persecution or persecution in the church. It was really just mild. I mean, they threw him in jail overnight. I mean, John MacArthur's been in jail a couple times, right? Um, we know many believers, street preachers, who have been, you know, uh, uh, stuffed in the back of the car and hauled off to the pokey at least for a couple hours, right? Um, really mild compared to what it could be, but kind of on par with what Peter and John experienced just here. And I think to myself, man, are we ready for that? Are we going to be as bold as as they are, I want to, right? We understand that we can't do it, right? We've, we've, we've got we've to be dependent upon the Holy Spirit. We've, we've got to be ready. If we don't know good doctrine and theology now, we won't know it then, right? If you can't proclaim the gospel now, if you can't articulate, even in a very simple way that a child could understand, but if you can't articulate the gospel now, you're probably not going to be able to art- articulate it then. Um, so here we've got this, we've got this great example, Right? But I think also we, we have what should be a motivator a motivator for us to be ready. came to Christ, it came to them, it will come to us. So let's do this. Let's pray that 
as we and other believers face persecution of whatever degree, that we would be faithful to boldly proclaim the gospel as, as Peter and John. You know, I was, I was challenged today by, if, if you weren't here for, for, for the equipping time, um, that's a shame. Um, get the book, Respectable Sins. Uh, read the whole thing, but today we talked about ungodliness. And I really wish I would have read that before this morning. That way I could have been a little bit more prepared. But no, um, I was thinking about that and thinking about what, what um, Justin and Denny and, you know, we're Christians first. Um, and I think so often we, we fall into this, well, yeah, I'm a Christian first, but it's my job. And so I'm just going to be quiet because that's what they pay me to do. Or the neighbors really won't like what I have to say, so I just won't say it because i got to live next door to them. You know, we're Christians first. And we see that example lived out here in Acts. Right? Let's follow them as they follow Christ. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. And again, for what you show us and what you teach us, Lord. We thank you for, for the truths that, that are expressed in this passage. Um, the truths concerning our relationship to the Holy Spirit when it comes to ministry. The truths concerning Christ as, as the only way to salvation. Um, those are truths that we must know, that we must know and, and proclaim. Stand firm on in the face of, of opposition. Stand firm in, in the face of persecution. But Lord, we also have a great example in this passage of, of Peter and John being obedient, obedient to Christ, Lord. And I don't know that any of us have, have faced anything remotely like they have, which is really mild compared to what many believers face today. And, and I often look at myself and I wonder how I would handle handle even those mild circumstances, how we would handle those mild circumstances. So I pray, God, that you would, in whatever way that you feel um, and know best, you would prepare us, God, for the work, the trials, the persecution, whatever it is that you have in store for us, that it would all be done for your glory, but also for our good and the good of the church as you continue to save many. Jesus, we love you and we thank you for your Amazing love for us. Amen.